Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. The millennial generation is America's largest, larger than even the post-war baby boom generation. Millennials make up nearly a quarter of the U.S. population and is the most diverse generation of adults in American history. My guest today will explain why this generation serves as a social, economic, and political bridge from older generations to the increasingly racially diverse ones who will follow millennials. He is Bill Fry, Senior Fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program and one of the nation's leading demographers. His new report, The Millennial Generation, A Demographic Bridge to America's Diverse Future, is full of deep analysis and fascinating data on millennials and how they compare across a range of factors to older and younger generations. Also in this episode, Congress expert Molly Reynolds looks at what's happening in Congress around gun safety policy. And Japan expert Maria Solis interviews a retired Japanese general about security and deterrence matters in East Asia. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get the latest information about all of our shows. Bill, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Oh, I'm pleased to be here, Fred. I looked up the record. You were last here in May of 2017 to talk about your research on demography and democracy, and also over three years ago to talk about your book, Diversity Explosion, How New Racial Demographics Are Remaking America. Always fascinating conversation, so it's great to be here with you again. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So your new report is The Millennial Generation, A Demographic Bridge to America's Diverse Future. When I talk to scholars about the research, I always like to dive into the title, but I want to save that for a little bit later in the podcast. First, I want to ask you, as a demographer, who gets to decide when generations start and end? Oh, well, that's an interesting question, and there's not a real answer to it. I mean, I think these labels just kind of evolve over time. Some of it's done by the popular media. Some of it's done by marketing people. Very seldom do the people involved, people who are in these generations, get to make that decision. I mean, I think that the clearest generation is the baby boom generation. I think most people agree it's for people born between 1946 and 1964 because obviously that's when all the babies were born. Um, The generations prior to the baby boomers and generations since the baby boomers are somewhat less well-defined, and that's, I think, because of the sort of gauzy nature of the way people sort of identify all of that. So even in this particular case where we're talking about the millennial generation, there are many different definitions of the millennial generation. Most people started somewhere in the early 80s and end sometime in the late 90s, but Mm -hmm. I've even seen some of it sort of spill over into the early 2000s. In this particular paper, I use people born between 1981 and 1997. Those people in 2015 were aged 18 to 34. And so we stick with that all the way through just to have a consistency. But as I say, you'll read other reports that have other kinds of definitions. And we call them millennials because they're the ones who are coming into their adulthood around the year 2000 at the turn of the millennium. Yes, that's right. This term millennials was actually invented by two guys in the late 1980s. Neil Howe and the late William Strauss put out some famous articles and books on the millennial generation. I mean, it's probably the only generation that actually got defined by an individual (laughs) or a pair of individuals. And, you know, they foresaw this already in the late 1980s, that these were going to be the young adults this millennium. And so it just kind of stuck. As a member of the Generation X myself, I feel drawn to the famous book by Douglas Copeland, Generation X, but also the band that Billy Idol was in, Generation X, (laughs) uh, way back in the 70s. 
So let's talk about the millennial generation that you've studied in this report. Give me some numbers, Bill. How large is it? I know one of the key points of the study is to look at its racial diversity and so on. Talk about those kind of aspects of this generation. Sure. The millennial generation, as I define it, is over 75 million in number. As I say, other people might define it differently and might have bigger numbers, but it's at least 75 million. And it's now bigger than the baby boom generation. It's getting about a quarter of the whole U.S. population, maybe 23% inching to a quarter of the U.S. population. 30% of the voting age population, which I think is very important, is going to be important going forward. Millennials are all adults, and they're all of voting age, and I think that's really important going forward. And they're also a significant part of the working age population. Close to 40% of the working age population are millennials. And, as of course, as you pointed out, their diversity, which is the main theme of this, is quite important. 44% minorities are the largest minority adult population we've had in the United States up till now, and I think that's very, very important. I just want to let listeners know that there are some fantastic and very colorful charts and pie graphs and infographics on our website that go with this report, and you can find all of that at brookings.edu slash millennials, and just remember that's spelled with two N's, brookings.edu slash millennials. So, Bill, let's go into that diversity question because that is a key aspect of this report. You say that that's one of the key distinguishing features of this generation. I mean, sure that they grew up with iPods and other kinds of Internet technology, maybe more than other generations before them. They're very large, 75 million. But racial diversity is one of their distinguishing features that's most important. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I can just give you the numbers. 44% minority, 56% white, about 21% Hispanic, and 14% black. Now, you know, 56% white, if you compare that with the baby boomers at the same age, they were 78% white. Back then, when they were in the same 20s and early 30s type years, the largest minority of this very white generation were African Americans, not Hispanics. And Generation X is somewhere in between. And of course, we're moving to the middle of this century where the Census Bureau says we're going to be a minority white population. Already that's the case for people in the early years. The Census Bureau says people under age 10 are already minority white. So as we progress going forward, this millennial generation is really going to be the generation because of its racial diversity to sort of break the mold and just plow ahead and make people understand why diversity is so important in this country. And their achievements, their examples as role models for the generations that follow, their ability to overcome racial disparities and hurdles that have been thrown against racial minorities over the years. I mean, we see it in politics. We see it in all kinds of ways. To the extent they're going to be able to do that, they're going to forge the way for the generations that follow them. And that's why I think they're so important as the first, you know, very minority adult generation. They have a big role to play, and I think they're up to it. So, uh, you know, that's the good news. What explains this change, this shift in the millennial generation's diversity as compared to the baby boomers that you pointed out to being the largest non-white population were African-Americans, and now it's Hispanic. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason why the millennial generation is so racially diverse has to do with past immigration to the United States. And I emphasize past immigration, not necessarily current immigration. That is, during the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, we had higher numbers of people coming to the U.S. from Latin America, from Asia. The consequence of the changes in the immigration law really in the mid-60s, but it didn't really start having an impact until the 80s and 90s. And, of course, those people usually come to the U.S. as young adults and their children 
helped to build up that youthful population. At the same time, the white population is getting older and continues to get older. And we actually, in the last 10 years, have had an absolute decline of whites under age 18 and a modest change in whites during the millennial population. So the growth of this millennial population from babies on has a lot to do with first and second generation Americans. Now, I have an asterisk there, and the asterisk is people are thinking, well, immigration is the cause of diversity in the United States. Well, past immigration has been, but in fact today, most of the growth in the Hispanic population are from birth to people that are already here, not so much immigration anymore. That's what you talked about in your book, Diversity Explosion. I remember we had a conversation about that, and it really struck me that America is diversifying no matter what immigration policies are in place because of the people who are already here and have been here. Yes, absolutely. I mean, as an aside, I know there's a lot of discussion about changing the immigration laws right now. And I did some back-of-the-envelope projection that, of course, the Census Bureau says that we're going to become minority white in 2044. You know, if we had this huge reduction in immigration, that would be just pushed back to 2047. I don't think anybody would really notice that. So people think that changing immigration will somehow make America less diverse. I think that's a wrong-headed kind of issue to kind of grapple with right now. Well, let me ask you now to disaggregate the data. Now, we've established that 23% of the total U.S. population are millennials, but that is not distributed evenly across America's states, regions, and cities. Can you discuss where millennials are the largest and the smallest proportions of their populations in various places? Sure. Millennials are 30% of the population in Provo, Utah, for example. And those places that have high millennial percentages of the populations include some college towns or state capitals plus college towns, Austin, Texas, Madison, Wisconsin, and then also places like Baton Rouge and Columbus, Ohio, There's several California metropolitan areas that have large millennial footprints like Bakersfield, San Diego, Fresno, some of the interior California places that have younger, maybe more Hispanic populations or drawing people from other parts of the country. So the bigger footprints tend to be in the Sun Belt, except for some college towns sprinkled around the Midwest and the Northeast. The ones with the lowest millennial footprints are in Florida as you might imagine, (laughs) because Florida's attracted all these old people, older people. I'm one of them. I'm not living in Florida, but one of these older people. And so you have smaller percentages of millennials there. And then some of the kind of Midwestern, slow-growing areas, Cleveland, Detroit, Pittsburgh, are three places where the share of millennials is smaller than they are nationally. Now, that's all millennials, but let's disaggregate further. (laughs) And can you talk about where are the non-white millennials most likely to be concentrated? Yeah, you know, this is where there is a great deal of disparity across the country. It goes from 96% minority millennials in McAllen, Texas, to 16% minority in Knoxville, Tennessee. But there are a fair number of the bigger metropolitan areas in this country are quite diverse. 30 of the 100 largest metropolitan areas are what you call majority-minority. That's fewer than half the population is white among the millennial population. And, you know, for example, in Miami, it's 25% white. In Houston, it's 32% white. L.A., 27% white among millennials. And then there's another 18 metro areas, in addition to those 30 that are minority white, where more than 40% of the population are minority populations. So almost half of the big metropolitan areas in this country are getting close to that, you know, 50% point in terms of the millennial population being diverse. Now, there are a bunch of metropolitan areas that are largely white, more than 80% white, like Knoxville or Provo, Utah, 
or Pittsburgh or uh, Spokane, Washington. But there's only a handful of them that are that white. Mostly there's a high degree of diversity. Now, it differs from one area to the other. About half of the millennials in Los Angeles are Hispanic. In Atlanta, you know, the biggest part of millennial minorities are African-American. And then some other places, there's just kind of a distribution across all of the groups, like in Chicago or New York. Again, I encourage listeners to visit our website and find this report and look at all of the great charts and tables that lay out all of these data and distributions on these great maps. So, Bill, in what regions of the country is the young adult population growing the fastest or the most, and where is it not growing or even declining? Again, it's the Sun Belt. That's the big magnet for millennials. And the growth in the millennial population has to do not only with migration, but also sort of aging of people into that young adult age group from the generations below. But if you look at places like Colorado, Colorado Springs and Denver are in the top 10 growth of young populations in the United States. Three Texas metropolitan areas in that top 10 list, San Antonio, Austin, and Houston. And then a couple even in Florida, Orlando, Cape Coral, and Seattle is on that list as well. So these are, tend to be south and western areas that attract a lot of people anyway. And of course, millennials are all part of that. There's only one of the 100 largest metropolitan areas that actually show a decline in the young adult population in the first half of this decade, and that's Birmingham, Alabama, but other places that show slow growth in the young adult population, which is of millennial age, are Chicago, St. Louis, Milwaukee, Syracuse, some of the other places kind of in the slow-growing parts of the Midwest. I noted in your research as well that two states have experienced a decline in their young adult populations between the years 2010 and 2015, and those are Illinois and West Virginia. Yeah, these are states that tend to have out-migration, and the people who tend to migrate a lot are young people. So as millennials move into this young adult age group and they move around the country, these are places they're moving out of rather than moving into. So that's why we don't see, uh, see growth in that young adult population there. What's happening in Congress? My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. Congress returned to Washington from their President's Day recess this week, and waiting for them were demands for action on and the accompanying opposition to gun control legislation in the aftermath of the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida. There are various proposals circulating in Congress, some of which were on the table before the Parkland shooting, only to be revisited in the aftermath of a particularly high-profile event. In this way, we are seeing what some political scientists call the policy stream and the problem stream uniting, existing policy solutions being connected to a problem that, in this case, reemerges on the national agenda in a high-profile way. Policy ideas Congress is reportedly considering include strengthening the existing national background check system expanding it to cover more purchases, raising the minimum age for purchase of AR-15 rifles, and banning bump stocks. Most, if not all, of these ideas face an uphill climb in Congress, in part because of the power and influence of pro-gun interest groups like the National Rifle Association. Much has been made of the campaign contributions these organizations make to Republican members of Congress, but we should not necessarily think of those donations as the mechanism through which interest groups persuade members of Congress to cast votes that the groups favor. 
Political scientists have long argued that interest groups often give to candidates who they expect to agree with them precisely because they want to see allies in office and not because they think the financial resources will change representatives' votes. In addition, in the case of the NRA specifically, there's evidence from political scientist Matthew Lacombe, for example, that the NRA has consciously and successfully created a politicized social identity among its members, which is then leveraged to mobilize its members to contact their representatives and otherwise work to defeat gun safety legislation. If we are to see action on gun legislation in the coming weeks, it will likely require the involvement of President Trump recent experiences suggest that Trump's public pronouncements, including proclaiming his support for several proposals generally backed by Democrats and generally opposed by Republicans in a recent televised meeting, often bear little resemblance to the proposals his legislative affairs staff actually pushed for on Capitol Hill. And if President Trump were to try and draw some of his co-partisans into a compromise on gun legislation, it's not clear, given his low approval ratings, that he has the political capital to be terribly effective at doing so. If we do see Congress fail to take action on gun legislation in the next several weeks, expect it to come with a heavy dose of blame-shifting efforts. House Republicans have already begun maintaining that they will wait to see what the Senate does. And so if there's no action on the other side of the Capitol, Speaker Ryan and his leadership colleagues will likely argue that there was no point in taking up anything that they didn't know that the Senate would pass. Keep in mind, the House frequently passes bills it knows will be done on arrival in the Senate, but only when it thinks there's political value in doing so. In this case, blaming the Senate is a convenient way to avoid having some members cast a tough vote. And in the Senate, Democrats are pushing for the opportunity to vote on multiple proposals, just as they recently did on immigration. If Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell chooses not to schedule multiple votes, Democrats will have to decide whether to relent and support the narrowest of proposals, likely a targeted background check bill, or block all action in order to send a message about Republicans' unwillingness to go farther. Even if Congress takes no action, we are just eight months away from the congressional midterms where gun control could emerge as a possible issue. Many of the 23 Republican-held congressional districts that also voted for Hillary Clinton are in suburban areas with large numbers of well-educated voters, exactly the kinds of districts where mobilization around protecting kids at school might work as a messaging issue. It's too soon to know for sure, and much of what happens in November will involve big national trends like President Trump's approval rating and the economy. But as the midterms get closer, the chances that any given issue could play a role increase. And what happens in the midterms will obviously have a major impact on what keeps happening in Congress. Let's shift over to another one of the factors that you looked at, and that's educational attainment of millennials. And you wrote, quote, here the story is both good and not so good. Why is that? Well, the good news is that the millennials are the most educated young adult population we've had in history. And I mean, this is good news in a knowledge economy where we want to be able to, you know, improve our uh, productivity and bring people into to high skilled jobs and so forth. Thirty six percent of millennials aged 25 to 34 have graduated from college compared to only 29% of Gen Xers and only 24% of baby boomers when they were at the same age. So this is really very good news. The not so good news about it is that there's a high degree of racial difference with respect to college education. 62% of Asian millennials have graduated from college, but only 17% of Hispanic millennials have graduated from college with whites and blacks in between. And of course, we know that education is a good predictor or a good marker of future earnings. And we also know, as we've been talking about this, this is a very racially diverse 
population where Hispanics and blacks are two big parts of that generation who are going to be coming into college age years, who are going to be going into the labor force. And as a result, I think it's really important that we look into this. Now, the reasons why there is this education disparity, there's certain a lot of people who are looking into this, a lot of people who are very seriously dealing with the policies to try to make this more equal. But some of it has to do with segregation in communities where underfunded, segregated schools tend to be gone to by some of these groups and they don't have the same kind of advantage other groups do. It's also the case, especially with going to college, it's a lot easier if your parents can give you some money to help you with tuition, to help you with expenses and all of that. Well, some of these groups, whites and minorities, but more heavily with minority groups, don't have that option. In fact, in some cases, you know, they're expected to send money back to their parents who maybe are not doing so well. It's a matter of dealing with various levels of policies at the state level, at the local level, to understand where these disparities are and how we can deal with it. But as a country, if we think about millennials as this young adult generation who's uh, sort of leading the way towards even more racially diverse generation behind them, this is where we need to do more investment into the future. And so when I say millennials are a good news and a bad news story about education, even all of these racial minority groups are doing better than earlier members of those groups, earlier generations of those groups, and they continue to improve. But these are disparities that I think really do need to be addressed, and it's something to put on our front burner, I think, as a nation. Another one of these disparities that you document is home ownership. So here's this generation who are now coming into positions in their lives where they could potentially afford homes, would want to form families, move into their own homes, and yet you show that home ownership among millennials is lower than in previous generations, and especially among African Americans. Why is this happening and why is this a problem? I think when people think about home ownership and millennials, the first thing that comes into mind is that they're living in their parents' basement. And the reason that they're doing that is because they've been hit by the double whammy of a great recession and a housing bust. The first millennial turned age 27 at the beginning of the Great Recession, which is about the same time we had this housing bus go along. So they weren't able to get jobs as quickly as uh, earlier generations were when they got into their 20s following along in their careers. And they certainly weren't able to get into the housing market as well. So, I mean, this has hit all sort of categories of millennials. And that, as a result, millennials age 25 to 34, about 39 percent are now homeowners. But Gen Xers at the same age 47% of them were homeowners, and baby boomers at the same age, 55% of them were homeowners. So they're quite different as a generation. And, you know, a lot of people are wondering, where are they going to sort of make up for all of this? And so that's one issue with millennials. But the other is that there is some racial disparity in all of this. So when you look at the percentage of millennials who are homeowners among whites, it's 56%. When you look at it among blacks, it's 33%, and the other groups are in between. Some of the same kinds of issues that hold back some of the minority groups in education also apply to home ownership, and that is having some wealth in the family that can help them with that down payment, that can give them some advice about the best way to deal with the housing market. As I say, none of the millennials have fared as well as earlier generations in home ownership, but I think it's especially an issue with some of the minority populations who, like the young people going to college, are going to be making up ever greater shares of the home buying public as we move forward. So I think that's an issue that we also need to address. So, Bill, I just want to let listeners know, too, that in addition to your examination of things like homeownership rates and educational attainment, you also have a lot of data on marriage rates and percent of people by generation in poverty. I mean, there's tons of other data in this report that I want to make sure listeners go and find and see on their own. 
But let's shift a little bit into some of the public policy issues. You've kind of mentioned a few of them here. But what are some of the key public policy issues that stem from these demographic data about millennials? Yeah, I mean, I think we do need to deal with investment in their education, investment in their future in terms of getting them the kinds of jobs that will give them good middle-class incomes. And that is not only in them, but also in their children. Because when you think of millennials as this kind of bridge between America's past and America's future, how well they do is going to say something about how well their children do over time. And, you know, I talk a lot about this bridge and especially the racial disparity between people younger than millennials and people older than millennials, something I call the cultural generation gap. If we look at the generation younger than millennials and the generation older than millennials, the generation older than millennials is 68% white. The generation younger than millennials is only 52% white. Millennials are kind of a little closer to them, but they're sort of in the forefront of all of this. And the reason I mention this cultural generation gap is because if we're going to invest in this younger generation in all kinds of ways, have more progressive views about education, family assistance, social safety net programs, all of which are very heavily needed, we need to bring in the older population who are the major taxpaying population. And there's a little bit of reticence about these older generations, as you go even further older, the baby boomers and older to see these young people as their children and their grandchildren. I think the race issue is really very important. We've seen that in the 2016 election. I think Donald Trump's idea of make America great resonated in different ways for different people. Some people thought, well, he's going to bring back all these manufacturing jobs that we had in the 1950s and 60s, and that's how he's going to make America great. But another thing that came to people's minds is we don't like the way the demography is changing in this country, and he's going to do things to make America great by bringing us back to, like, the 1950s demography in this country and his views about immigration restrictions, his immigration about tougher policing, his views about trying to get away with all this political correctness stuff, I think resonated with his older population very strongly. I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush. I'm that age. I know a lot of people that age, and polling shows there are a lot of people that age don't buy any of this stuff. But there were enough people that are concerned about the way the country is changing that they're less inclined to be able to be sympathetic to these kinds of investments. And we've already seen it in the first year of the administration and with a Republican-controlled Congress that tried to put the brakes on the Affordable Care Act. They weren't very successful with that, but they have given a very big tax cut to lots of people, and probably the next stage of that might be to try to take away some of the programs that are going to help some of these younger people under the guise that maybe there's not money for them. So there's that piece of the cultural generation gap. As I say, it's not everybody, but it's enough to make kind of a difference to put the brakes on maybe some of the kinds of issues and some of the kinds of investments that we have to make in the younger generation. The younger part of the cultural generation gap, if you take any kind of survey, young people are much more inclusive about all of this one out of seven millennials' marriages are interracial marriages. Only one out of 20 baby boomer marriages were interracial marriages. So it shows you things are changing over time. They have much more open ideas on surveys about whether they think America's going in the right direction, how they feel even white millennials, how they feel about Black Lives Matter, some of these kinds of issues. And in the ballot box, we saw in the last three presidential elections, both the two that elected Barack Obama and the one that elected Donald Trump, the under-40 population voted Democrat, you know, largely that relating to issues that might you know, affect them positively, 
the over 40 population voted Republican. And in all three of those elections, at least in the popular vote, the younger population won. So it shows that there's some clout among this younger population towards some of the issues and some of the programs that look at America's future rather than America's past. So, you know, my issue with the demography of millennials as a bridge generation is I think they can have a very positive influence on the whole country as they demonstrate their ability to do good things as they move into middle age, positions of leadership, positions in government and industry via a big part of the popular culture as being the face of America. I think people of all generations are going to see this kind of cultural generation gap isn't as important as we first thought it was going to be. And that's how I see this is related to changing how we see our investments in the future in this country. Well, Bill, let's finish this way. I'm going to read a quote from your paper and ask you to comment on that. You write that, quote, the impact of the aging of the white population on younger generations cannot be overemphasized. Why? Yeah, you know, I think the aging of the white population, when we look at it demographically, the Census Bureau shows that in eight years or so, we're going to have an absolute decline of whites, but we already have an absolute decline of whites in the younger years. The only part of the white population that will be growing in the future to any significant degree are the seniors as baby boomers continue to move into those years. So they're very important in terms of they're still a big part of the population. They're influential. They vote a lot. They invest in certain ways. So they need to get on board if we're going to make this great transition into this, you know, next generation of the millennials and the children of the millennials going forward. And I do think that as people understand the demography of all of this, I mean, people talk about social inequality, which is very important. People talk about immigration issues, which is very important. But if you just look at the general demography of how the country is changing, you'll see that the only way we're going to have improvements in our labor force, in our productivity, in the kind of energy that we need to have people working and contributing to our country is to make sure that this next generation, the millennials and the people following them, are treated well and are taken seriously. And these kind of gaps that we were talking about before, the racial and social inequality with respect to education and home ownership, but also exists with respect to poverty and income and other kinds of issues. Those are quite important, and not just the inequality, but the racial inequality that's part of that. And I think millennials, they're very optimistic. Surveys have shown that especially black, Hispanic, and Asian millennials, even more than whites, believe that they're going to do better than their parents in the future and that their generation is going to do better than their parents in the future. They have very optimistic views about this country. And I think if we kind of just let them go and kind of embrace that optimism and have leaders that go along with those kinds of messages, I think we're going to be much better off. But getting back to it, the millennials are the bridge to the future. And, you know, how they fare, I think, is how we're going to fare as a country going forward. Well, as a member of Generation X, I can say I'm excited to learn a lot more about the millennial generation and hope that they prosper, and I'm sure they will. Bill, I want to thank you once again for sharing your time and expertise with us on the Brookings Cafeteria. Well, I very much enjoyed it, Fred. Thank you. You can read Bill's research on the millennial generation and find all of the data on our website at brookings.edu slash millennials. Here's senior fellow Maria Solis in her discussion with Noboro Yamaguchi, a retired lieutenant general in the Japan Ground Self-Defense Force. My name is Mireya Solis. I am the Night Chair in Japan Studies at the Brookings Institution. 
and it is my pleasure to host retired Lieutenant General Noburo Yamaguchi, who is currently a professor at the International University of Japan. We're very fortunate to have General Yamaguchi with us to talk about a very timely and important topic for the U.S.-Japan alliance, the very active and provocative nuclear and missile program of North Korea has produced a marked deterioration of the security environment in the region and has also opened new challenges for the U.S.-Japan alliance. One of the challenges I'd like to discuss with the general today is on the issue of deterrence. It's a pleasure to have you here, General Yamaguchi. Thank you very much for having me. Some of our audience may not be very familiar with this concept, so I was wondering if we could start with some very brief definitions of what do we understand by deterrence, by extended deterrence, and then extended nuclear deterrence. Deterrence is used in a sentence like, we want to deter North Korea from attacking her with nuclear weapons. So it's suggesting that if you do something bad to me, uh, you would suffer from me more than you give us. So that is a deterrence, and uh, particularly this uh, was uh, uh, relevant uh, during the Cold War period, particularly after nuclear weapons were produced. Since then, deterrence was very, very important. The extended deterrence, what we call nuclear umbrella, or not necessarily nuclear, but uh, security umbrella provided by the Allies. In Japan's case, extended deterrence provided by the United States by its nuclear and conventional forces, mainly nuclear during the Cold War period. But now we take extended deterrence in broader sense. So let me then jump into the discussion. In your opinion, what are the key issues for Japan when thinking about extended deterrence? Japan is surrounded by the greatest powers in terms of military capability. Russia is our neighbor, North Korea is our neighbor, China is a neighbor. And along with those three possible adversaries, we will have to deal with global terrorism coming in East Asia from Southeast Asian countries. Those are the issues we need to address. So you have identified issues, potential threats. And then let me ask you, General, how should the U.S.-Japan alliance deal with these adversaries and with these threats? Yeah, maybe uh, U.S. and Japan are fairly accustomed to to dealing with Russia since the Cold War period. Uh, now we have China, which is rising very, very rapidly, and we don't know yet uh, which direction China goes. But we are hoping that we could shape the course of Chinese future better direction. And we have North Korea. It's almost out of control. And even in comparison with Soviet Union, North Korea is worse uh, because the Soviet Union never said that they would launch nuclear missiles to Japan or the United States. But North Korea is actually saying that their hydrogen bombs would sink Japanese islands. That is very, very scary. And uh, those different factors are what we need to deal with. Uh, We need to deter from doing something really bad. What should be the measures for extended deterrence that you would recommend? Extend deterrence or deterrence relies on perception, particularly perception of adversaries and perception of allies too. To give the possible adversary the idea that they shouldn't do something really bad against us, we need to be strong enough including nuclear forces, nuclear deterrence provided by the United States, and conventional deterrence as well. In addition to umbrella provided by the United States, 
Japan itself can do uh, things. Uh, if we have robust uh, defense capability for purely defense purpose, that would help the total uh, picture of uh, extended deterrence. And extended deterrence is a matter of perception. If we talk about perception of allies, extended deterrence matters overall relations uh, between allies. I always look back to 2011 when tsunami hit Japan and the U.S. Naval Carrier Battle Group came to offshore Tohoku and helped us a lot. And at that time, nobody worried about credibility of extended deterrence. As such, deterrence or extended deterrence does not necessarily depend on how many weapons are aiming at the enemy or how much military commitment can be drawn from the Allies, but rather overall relations among Allies. So... In addition to hardware, we have to take care of uh, software as well, the overall relations between U.S. and Japan. Very interesting, General Yamaguchi. If I can ask you one last question. I think that there's a lot of attention on the growing capabilities of North Korea, in particular the possibility that North Korea could, with an intercontinental ballistic missile, reach the United States territory and where that would undermine the credibility of the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Do you think that that capability, that development of that capability is a game changer for the U.S.-Japan alliance, or are these concerns exaggerated? I need to make two points. First of all, we have to stick to the international consensus to make North Korea abandon its nuclear weapons in a complete, irreversible and verifiable manner. We need to stick it. For doing so, we need to stop it and uh, we need to let North Korea to reduce or you know going back and that is one and another point the North Korea's uh, ICBM or uh, weapon that could reach uh, US there is an argument that uh, because of the longer range missiles US would not risk New York or Washington DC for the sake of uh, saving Tokyo or Korea I don't agree with that argument Rather, because of longer range of weapons of North Korea, threat perception of the uh, U.S. is uh, getting closer to that of Japan or ROK. So we share the same kind of threat perception to illuminate threat of North Korea's nuclear weapons. So I don't buy a decoupling argument, but rather this is a time for allies to stick together. General Yamaguchi, thank you so much for speaking to us today. You're welcome. Thank you very much. General Yamaguchi recently participated in a Brookings event on the U.S.-Japan alliance and the problem of deterrence. Maria Solis is the co-director of the Center for East Asia Policy Studies at Brookings and the Philip Knight Chair in Japan Studies. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. Thanks also to our intern, Stephen Lee. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. 
Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.